time it is to open your word and have you teach us. Your all-sufficient scriptures are inerrant, they're infallible, they have everything we need for life and godliness. And so, Lord, as we look into them today, would you uh, impress upon our hearts truths, Lord, truths that affect change in our life, particularly affect worship. Lord, may we, after hearing this great doctrine of love, be uh, ones who love easier, ones who are kind and gentle with people, who care for one another. And may we be reminded, Lord, that we receive something that we did not deserve. Lord, thank you for this morning. We're so glad to be together. We know there's others who can't be. We have people who have gone through procedures and those who are just ill and those who are just not capable of getting here, Lord, and we miss them. And we wish they were here, Lord, but we pray that you would comfort them even now. Lord, be with those who um, are away traveling, um, our missionaries around the world, all those, Lord, that we long to be with. And we know in heaven we will regather together. But, Lord, we pray that you'd be a comfort to them now, Lord. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Valentine's Day, I could not think of anything better to preach on than the doctrine of love. And there is no better illustration of the love of God than the doctrine of election. It focuses in on the love of God in a way that is astounding. And we'll see that over and over. Think about the church. Just think about what God has done to gather his church. In the New Testament, there's just a one word for church. It's ecclesia. Uh, ecclesia. It's a noun that comes from a root verb that we work our way back to kaleo. And that just simply means that these are the called. And so when we talk about the church, it's the called ones. You're the called ones. God calls you out of the world. In Romans chapter 8, 28, it says he calls us out of the world for his purposes. So God has a purpose he wants to display his love to you. He wants to show you that you are unique. He sets you above all other things. This language is all through the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, Paul says, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling, kaleo, the calling with which you were once called. So this is the mark of the church. Now, in our study on depravity in previous weeks, this is really a part two to last week, but previous before that, we're taught that the scriptures tell us that there's no one deserving of God's grace. There's no one deserving of his mercy. So there are, there's no one, now think about this, deserving of the call to be a believer. We all deserve Judgment. So this is why I call this the doctrine of love. There is no greater demonstration than to take a group of people deserving of God's perfect wrath and judges and call them out of their sin and grant them, think about this, a perfect standing with him for eternity. There's no greater love that he would do that for us. The Greek word for the church was just an ordinary word. If you go back in the use of it in Koinia Greek. It was just an ordinary word. It, it just talked about an everyday conversation of people, a group that would assemble. They'd be assembled over there, or a group would be talking over there. It was just a, a word, Ecclesia was just a word that talked when people got together. 
But everything changed with that word. When the love of God, when God chose his church from the foundations of the world, that word ecclesia changed. It's become the mark of the believer. Because God summoned to himself by his divine love a group of people that he would call to be his family, the church. Look, it's not hard to study the Bible and realize that the saved are the church. That's the church. It's the saved. The church is not built by good people or some well-intentioned people. It's not an organization constructed around traditionalism. Some may think that. We're individual people that God chose to set his divine love upon before the foundations of the world, and we could not escape him. That's the church. And his goal was to make us his eternal family. So we could say this, that the church is made up of people lovingly called by God, lovingly assembled by God, and lovingly identified by God for his divine purpose. I think that's what you're going to hear out of this text over and over. Now, almost every epistle in the New Testament uses the term beloved. I love this term. Anytime I find it in the Bible, I circle that. I want to find the context. I I love that. Because it reminds me that he talks about his church in such endearing terms. Don't you love it when your sweetheart or somebody loves you uses a term of endearment towards you? On my phone, it doesn't say Gina. It says my honey. (laughs) My honey's calling. See, it's a term of endearment, isn't it? And that's what the Bible says over and over. You are my beloved. I chose before the foundations of the world to set my love upon you, uniquely upon you. Romans, listen to this. I picked out one verse. There's tons of them. Romans 1, 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, he's speaking to the church in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to that. To all of you who are beloved of God, I just love that, don't you? I mean, that's just amazing. That's how God thinks of us. We are his beloved. We are his beloved. I know we often speak of our spouses that way, but isn't that how Christ sees us? We are his beloved. We are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if there's anything we need to understand this morning regarding salvation of our souls, it is that God has lovingly called us into his eternal family. And we are a group of people who have been brought together By a loving, divine summons. He summons us together. We are the loving handiwork of God. Well, there's no other, I don't think, I don't know, there's another better passage to help us understand how God so lovingly delivered us from our sin and to make us his children in Ephesians chapter 1. Look with me at verse 3, just as a way of induction. Look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much joy. The word blessed is a word that speaks of great joy. Great eternal blessing. Blessing be the God and the Father. This is what Paul is saying about God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing 
and heavenly places in Christ. And this starts this beautiful passage to show us how blessed we are. It sets the scene how God summons by his love, how his divine love supernaturally brings salvation to people. And you'll notice when you look at this, well, the English is a little hard because it actually drops a few periods in. But actually, in the original Greek, verses 3 through 14 is one run-on sentence. If you are an English major like my wife, this might drive you crazy. But what Paul is doing is he can't take a breath as he, by the inspiration of the Spirit, starts to pin down what he believes about God. And he just goes on and on from 3 through 14, and he can't take a breath. Our English will put some periods in there, and you'll see where it confuses them and crosses over some sentences um, because it was meant to be one great statement. Well, this morning, I want to look at eight lessons that we learned from God's love. The first will be the longest, but then we'll move quickly through this as we try to break this passage down. Number one, God, in his love, called us before the foundations of the world, before the foundation of the world. God in his love, you're going to hear this over and over. Problem with people who teach on the doctrine of election that I found is they forget love. And then the world hears it and they go, oh, that seems terrible. It is a doctrine of love. It is the greatest loving act God could ever do. So you're going to hear this in all my statements. God in his love called us from before the foundations of the world. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now look at this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, as part of these spiritual blessings... God in his love called his elect who were initially chosen before the foundations of the world. You can't get around this. I know there's many who don't like this, but you just can't get around it. It's black and white. It's on the page before you. God, in his infinite loving wisdom, chose his bride before the foundations of the world. Now, obviously, the physical calling came at some time and point in your life. But the plan for your loving calling, the loving establishing of your, of your relationship with the eternal God was planned before the foundations of the world. You just can't get around it. Notice verse 5. He predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intentions of his will. He predetermined... Now think about this. Predestination, everybody wants to get fired up about this word. It's such a beautiful word. It just means he predetermined our future. Can't he do that? Is he not God? Is he not Lord of all creation and all things? He predetermined our future. Look at this. It's very clear in verse 5. Look at it. He predetermined us to be his adopted children. And he's going to do that through the Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work. And this was all brought about in his kind intentions of his will. He's a loving God. He predetermined us in his love that he would rescue us through his son. And his predetermined will cannot be broken. Think about that. He doesn't go, well, I don't know if I'm really going to go with that. I might change my mind about that Menez character. No, no. He predetermined it. God lovingly predetermines your future. This is an act of love. And he does this before he creates anything. 
And, and this speaks of an incredible display to, uh, of love to his highest creation. Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Look at this. Which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now he talks about his son as the beloved, right? So he freely does this. Meaning grace does not have works attached to it. It's something God did before we ever existed before there was ever a world for us to actually live on, on earth for us to live on, he predetermined that we would be his children. This is a tremendous act of love, and it's obviously speaking of the great doctrine of unconditional election, isn't it? A doctrine of love. So let's put, a, let's put this together. Think with me. God knew everything about you, when you would be born, where you would grow up, when you would hear the gospel, when the Spirit would flood your heart and mind with His truth, and when He would bring you to faith. He was not oblivious to that. And planning all of that, God established His love for you in eternity past. In eternity past, He established your love. Can I get an amen, somebody? I mean, this is an incredible doctrine, isn't it? It, it, it stirs us, doesn't it? Last week, I left off with the greatest teacher on election, Jesus. I have one more point I wanted to show you that and works perfect into this thought. I want you to turn to John 17 with me. And one of the reasons I did, as you remind, if I remind you of last week's sermon, is some people want to run to Ephesians chapter 1, and it's got terms in there that are a little bit of lightning for some people. And, um, uh, but I love teaching on Jesus because what are you going to do with him? There's no one that teaches on the doctrine of election more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly because he was all part of the Godhead that chose us from the foundations of the world. Look at John 17. Um, this passage is, is full of God glorifying and Christ exalting. Uh, tons of instruction on, on the doctrines of election here. And, and it helps us understand what the Father did before time. And it's certainly one of my favorite passages. It's Christ's high priestly prayer um, just before his crucifixion. And it's really, think about this, when you look at John 17, I can't do it all, but I just want to hit a few verses. It is a commentary, Christ's commentary on salvation. And we could spend days on this passage, but I don't have time. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Number one, we just see here in verse 1, this pure unity before the, between the Godhead. Just pure unity. Unbreakable unity. Perfect desire to glorify one another. Now, let's get into this. Verse 2. Even as you gave him authority, speaking of himself in third person here, even as you gave him, that's Jesus, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, the Father gave the Son authority over all flesh. You see that in the text. Look at that. He gives the Son complete authority. So the God the Father has given the Son supreme authority over all flesh. That's all people. This verse introduces the purpose, though. That to all whom you have given him, notice this reoccurring phrase over and over, they will come, right? And notice there's two groups in this verse. Don't you see that? You can cut the verse in half. Christ has the authority over all life, right? You see that. But only for the ones that the Father has given him does he grant eternal life. 
Now, you can try to swim around this verse all you want, but you're going to have to abuse it to make it say what you want it to say. It is extremely clear. All that the Father has given me will come to me. I know that. See, he knows what God has done. Notice the alls in this verse. You just can't help but see it. Even if you've given authority over all flesh, that's all peoples, that's all mankind, right? And then again, that to all whom you have given me. So there's a, there's, he's separating here. There's a certain group. He has authority. He's, that God gave him authority over everyone, right? Life, death, eternity, all of that. He has authority over that. But then within this group, there are those he's given, and he may give eternal life to them. Just look at the verbs in there. Gave, given, give. They're all verbs that help us understand that, that God grants eternal life. Man does not choose it. God grants it. And you have, to re, you have to remember that because you've got to go back to the doctrines of depravity to realize, well, of course he can't choose salvation. He's dead. <laughs> he has no spiritual life. And so God must choose him and breathe life into him. This is certainly the doctrine of sovereign election. Look at verse 5 for the sake of time. Now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So that tells us several things. One, that the Father and the Son share the essence of glory, the nature of glory. And God says in Isaiah, he says, I won't give my glory to another. So he must be fully equal to the Father. Okay, so great theology of the Trinity here as well. But notice also that he says, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Well, that's the eternality of Jesus Christ. Back when the father was choosing who would be his, the son was there sharing that glory. So this is this, we were caught in this inter-Trinitarian love relationship, right? Of the father and the son here. Look at verse 6 with me. I have manifested your name to men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Notice Jesus is reinforcing this doctrine of unconditional election in his prayer. And this is, is this inter-Trinitarian conversation between the Godhead is going on here. The second person of the Godhead is addressing the first person of the Godhead. And we have the privilege of listening. I've had people tell me, Pastor, I just love to listen to what goes on in heaven. It's right here. <laughs> you can hear it. It's recorded. Right? Verse 6, I have manifested your glory to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I mean, think about this. This is all the night before the Lord's crucifixion. And now this becomes a commentary not only on salvation, but on his death. It's just, there's just a clear reference to the doctrine of election in here, isn't it? These men God gave, they're his elected disciples, aren't they? They were yours, and you gave them to me. You are a gift from God to the Son, if you're saved. There's just no other way to put it. You're a gift. You're a gift from God, and the Father chose them to be his own possession. And he chose them before the foundation of time. He chose them before they're ever um, before he ever gave them to the Son. He gave them, he chose them, he chose them before eternity really began for humanity. The, tra the transaction occurred before time. 
It's just fascinating. Look at verse 9 with me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Hmm, clear distinction there, isn't it? But of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, this is extremely precise verse, isn't it? It's extremely precise. Let me read it again. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Sets that group aside, doesn't he? But of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It's so precise, isn't it? And here, Jesus pouring out his heart to the Father just hours before his arrest. He's, he's asking on their behalf. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm praying only for the elect. I'm praying for those whom you have given to me. I'm not asking for the world, but those whom you give me, they are yours. Jesus can't even pray to the Father without talking about the doctrine of election. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's so loving. This is the loving nature of the Trinity. And to say that it's harsh and cold and unfair is a rejection of the person of God. It is a loving act of God. Well, doubtlessly, there may be some here or some will hear the sermon online or, or would have an argument with us. They might say, well, this is only the 11, Right? He's just talking about the disciples. They were this unique, unique group that God knew before the foundations of the world and called them out. Well, you got a problem because look at verse 20 with me. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Uh-oh, there's more than the 11. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me, now listen to this, through their word. Well, who's going to go write the New Testament? Peter, James, John, eventually Paul. <laughs> Who are these disciples? Who's, who's going to Samaria? Well, Philip is. I mean, it's, it's astounding. And then drop down with me to verse 24. It gets even more clear. Father, I desire that they also. Whoa, there's a nice little preposition. That's us. They also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have. So Jesus, as he prays the Father for the sovereign, unconditional election, desires that they also, whom you've given me, extends well beyond the eleven. It extends to Scott. Put your name in there. All those who would hear the message of the apostles, it would extend down to this very present hour, to all the elect, to all the centuries, to all the continents. Jesus is saying, Father, I desire that these also whom you have given me be with me and see my glory. See what you and I have together. Can you imagine the Godhead saying, bring them in so they can see all of who we are. What a loving, loving doctrine. I'm going to finish what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to finish the eternal sovereign work you started, Father. And I'm going to bring home all those you have chosen, and they're going to see our glory. When your loved ones pass away and get to go to heaven before you, do not mourn. They get to see the glory of the Godhead as the result of God's sovereign election. Isn't this amazing prayer, isn't it? It's Jesus acknowledging the Father's saving purposes, the loving Father saving those who would behold the glory of the Son. Father wants to be worshipped. And he wants the Son to be worshipped. And so everything is worship the Son. And the Son saying, I want him to worship you. And there's this beautiful relationship between the Father and the Son. And we're caught up in the middle of it all because of his love. Well, go back to Ephesians chapter 
1. I want to just approve verse 4 through the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't think of a better text to do that in than John 17. But Ephesians 1 continues, doesn't it? So our second thought is, God in his love called us by his redeeming love. God in his love called us by his redeeming love. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption, that's Jesus, through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, those willful sins, according to the riches of his grace. God lovingly called us before foundation, that's election. But God lovingly called us out of something. He called us out of sin. Out of a deserving death. That's called redemption. Right? So God called us before the foundations of the world. That's, that's the doctrine of election. God called us out of sin. Brought us out of sin. That's the doctrine of redemption, isn't it? We were called out of darkness. We were called out of sin. We were called out of death. And we were certainly called out of hell. <laughs> to, to an extent, weren't we? So in God's love, he sent his spirit, he regenerates us, brings new life, he redeems us to his son's blood, we receive the forgiveness of all of our transgressions, all of our sins, the Bible says. And if that isn't love, I don't know how else to define love to you. If you don't see that as love, then you have a distorted view of love. Now, once again, don't forget the doctrine of depravity here. Nobody has the ability to choose, right? So this has to be this loving, intentional act of God to bring us to salvation because of our sin. So look around you. This is the church. This is the church of the redeemed. There's brothers and sisters in here that God has redeemed. And, this, and our church is filled with individuals that God forgave their sins through his son's gracious, loving act of dying on the cross for us. And he has applied that blood to us he has cleansed us and then made us his bride. And that's what the church is made up. This is how he did it. He designed his church. People didn't stumble into the church. He designed it. The elect come and they worship God. That's what we did this morning in song. They worship in this You worship God because he redeemed you. And we come and we sing together as the redeemed. It should not... No, we shouldn't be so concerned of what the world thinks of our music. We should not be concerned of what the world thinks of our preaching or anything in our biblical responses. We are so loved, so separated from the world because of what God has done. We should not let them have any dictation of what we do in here. We have to fight that. We're so concerned about them in so many ways, which rightly so, we, want, we don't want people to go to hell, and we don't know who God's saving. But yet, we should worship in such a way that we reflect a loving God who knew us from the foundations of the world and redeemed us through the work of Christ, and that should be seen in how we sing and preach. And maybe that's what God uses in his sovereign wisdom to draw people to himself. If anything... We want the unbelieving church, excuse me, the unbelievers of the world to see the church worship. Let them eavesdrop in on people who are divinely called by God. Let them see what a community of believers look like who, who were regenerated by a loving God. Look with me at 1 Peter. You've got to see how this works in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at 
Verse 18. Remember God's loving act of redeeming us here. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Boy, if that was the case, some of us are going to come up short. (laughs) We may not have enough silver and gold to get redeemed. Right? Don't have enough of a big a list or enough you can give or whatever it may be, right? But knowing this, knowing this, you should know this, that you're not redeemed that way from your futile, futile way of life inherited from your fathers. That's depravity, right? See that right at the end of verse 18? Inherit it from your fathers. That's depravity. But, verse 19, with precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, this is God's plan before the foundations of the world. Notice verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Isn't that amazing? Not only does God know us before the foundations of the world, but his plan of how he was going to save us was centered on the work of his son before the foundations of the world. That's staggering. This is a God who plans out everything and it works out perfectly. Man can't do that. Notice the rest of this verse. But has appeared in these last times for for the sake of you. Why does he say that? Because you're worried about it. And he's not. He's already got it figured out. I knew you, you, and you, and you, you, all before the foundations of the world. The plan was my son's going to come. As grotesque as it is, he was going to be slaughtered for you, but this was my plan. It was my only way to get you to me so that you could have the righteousness of my son, so you could stand in my presence for all of eternity. I planned this from the beginning. And my son and I would be greatly glorified for it. Verse 21 who through him are believers in God. That's the way you come. That's always been God's plan from the beginning. Third thought, go back to Ephesians chapter 1. God in his love called us out of depravity. God in his love called us out of depravity. I just want to touch on this quickly. Verse 4. Notice what he says back in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And then look at the rest of this phrase. This is what I want to get on in this point. That we would be holy and blameless before him. So God in his love called us out of depravity. Well, why did he call us out of depravity? In God's love, he chose us before the foundations of the world. He lovingly redeemed us in order to make us holy and redeemable, right? Holy and blameless so we could be redeemed, right? So he had to make us holy. So here we realize that God's loving act of calling us was something he did Despite our depravity, he comes into our depravity in a sense, pulls us out of that. We're gripped by sin, we're gripped by death, and God calls us, saves us to make us holy. Now that is astounding. Those words, holy and blameless, are used in several places in the New Testament. You never get tired of seeing it. You know why? Because you go, yeah, if God didn't tell me that, I'm not sure I would believe it. Amen? I mean, we know ourselves, don't we? If God does not tell me that, I'm not sure I would believe it. But he tells me that over and over. My finished work on my son was so great. It was such a great plan from the beginning of the salvation that because of his work, you'll stand in my presence holy and blameless forever. So he had to call us out of sin so we could be in that. He had to do this great work. And certainly this is the doctrine of sanctification, right? Particularly initial sanctification, where he takes us from the world and takes us away and makes us his children, right? Right? And what a loving act. 
that God would take undeserved sinners, set us apart, make us holy through the finished work of his son so that we can have an eternal forever and ever and ever relationship with the Father and the Son. Now, what does this do? Well, it brings humility to us, doesn't it? I hope you're humbled this morning as you hear this. I hope even, even, and and I think it's right to say, why me, Lord? And I don't know that you'll ever answer that question here on earth. Because I don't. I don't know why. All I know is it's his choice. But it's humbling, isn't it? And it causes us to be greatly concerned about our sin now, right? When you touch the doctrine of election, it makes it like, oh, man, God planned me from the foundations of the world, and I'm living in this sin over here still? Does that bother you? See, I hope this, this doctrine of the great loving election of God makes you go, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm God, I, I'm done with this sin. I'm done with pride, pornography, um, gossip, legalism, what, you name it, whatever you're struggling with. Give me victory. This is incredible that you would do such a thing for me. See, it's humbling and it causes us to deal with sin. Look, it's the way we handle the rest of the church, the way we handle the Lord's table, right? We come to this table not for penance, like, okay, better take the cup and the bread because I probably really screwed up this last week. We come going, God, you knew us from the foundations of the world. This was your plan for your son to shed his blood for us. So we handle the table right, we handle church discipline right. Because we know the goal of church discipline is restoration. It's God's way of purifying the church and bringing restoration. And he did this because we do this because he loved us from the foundations of the world. Think about it. We handle everything that way. We worship with right hearts. We go home and confess to our spouses that we have pride and we're sinners. And, and though God has made us holy, we know we still wrestle with this. And when we come to this great work of God, we realize he set us apart. And so live as set apart people. Can I ask you a question? Where in your life are you not living set apart for God right now? If he, by his sovereign wisdom, set you apart from the foundations of the world, where are you not living set apart right now? What area of your life, just, and you, only you can answer this, where you have set that apart from God? Examine that. Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus Christ came and he entered a greater tabernacle. With his own blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats that can never take away sin. Hebrews 9 verse 11 and 12 says he walks in with his own blood into the eternal, the, the, the heavenly tabernacle of God right before God and offers us up a sacrifice for you and I and says here, this is for their eternal redemption. That's powerful. For thousands of years, animals were slaughtered, blood was brought before the, the physical tabernacle before the mercy seat, and all it could do is delay the judgment of God, and Christ comes in and nails it once. What a beautiful text. Ephesians 5 8, for you were form, for you were formerly darkness. Isn't that interesting? The verse just says this: you were formerly darkness. Do you get the picture? My heart was black with sin. How's that little song go? Until Jesus came in. See, we were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See, this doctrine of sanctification comes flying out of the doctrine of election, isn't it? Now walk as children of light. Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 13. So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, there's incredible words there, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and so he goes down this beautiful list of what a Christian should look like. 
all because of the doctrine of election. Changes the way we live. Fourth thought. God in his love calls us into each into an eternal identification with his son. God in his love calls us into an eternal identification with his son. Well, when you dissect this text, as I've done, I don't know how many times, but did it again this week, um, you find all these prepositional phrases. And the Apostle Paul uses prepositional phrases like nobody else. In fact, he uses prepositional phrases that speak like this, in Christ, in him, through him, before him, by him, etc. And he uses it, and I counted all of these. I have actually one of my old preaching Bibles where I've circled every one of them. He uses it 164 times to tell us we're identified in Christ. Now, if you tell your children 164 times something, you think they would pick it up, wouldn't you? Christian, pick it up. We have a position in Christ. Look with me. I'm going to read. You're going to count. All right? I've done this in DTP if you've been with me before. We're going to count. I'll emphasize it to help you. There's at least 12 or 13. I'll hint. You follow along. This is why I want you to have your Bibles in church with me, right? Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm in verse 3. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, that's number one. Are you following me now? I know what we're doing. All right? Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Third one. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to, to himself, according to the kind intentions of, of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. There's another one. Verse 7. In him, there's another one. He has, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of tr- our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mysteries of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Verse 10, with a view of the ministration suitable to the fullness of times, that he summed up of all things in Christ, there's another one, things in heaven and on earth, in him, starting at verse 11, there's another one, also we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose uh, of his purpose, who works all things together after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ, there's another one, would be the, the praise of the glory. Verse 13, in him you also, after, um, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is, a, who, is a, uh, excuse me, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. How many? Somebody said 12? It was 12 or 13. Somewhere along that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? This is what the Bible is teaching us. This is an incredible a thought here. The Father chose the Son before the foundations of the world that He would redeem the ones whom He chose before the foundations of the world in order that on earth and in, 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 in eternity He would identify all of us into His Son. He would, he would allow us, He would grant us to wear the righteousness of Christ. And so whenever He looks at us, He looks at us in Son, in Christ. This passage is choked full of that, isn't it? That's our identity in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, The one who is joined to the Lord is the one whose spirit is with us. 
See, there's a joining with the Spirit. This is what God planned before the foundations of the world. And so the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life. Our body becomes his temple. And the triune God has eternally identified us with his Son. How could you do that on your own? (laughs) How can you somehow muster up whatever it would take to be saved? Isn't that a terrible abuse of the sovereignty of God? Listen to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Years ago, I I learned to write my name in this verse. And let me read it to you from my version. Galatians 2.20, Scott has been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer Scott who lives, but Christ lives in Scott. In the life which Scott now lives in the flesh, Scott lives by faith in the Son of God who loves Scott and gave himself up for Scott. Galatians 2.20. See, that's the ident- I'm identified in Christ. I'm identified in his death. I'm identified in his resurrection. I'm identified in this daily life that I live. And I'll be identified in him in eternity. This is not simply about accepting some theological position this morning. I'm not talking about I want you to believe in the doctrine of election. I want you to believe in God. I want you to believe in his love for us. I want you to believe that he has an intimate relationship with you. And it didn't start when you walked some aisle, prayed some prayer, raised a hand. It started from the foundations of the world. And then he sent his son. And then he called you. He called you out of the world. And all of his glorious plan came together at your salvation. And it'll come together even more when he brings you into his presence. It's an everyday life now, walking with him. Five, God in his love called us to be under the authority of his infallible word. God in his love called us to be under the authority of his infallible word. Look at verse 7 through 9. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Now, verse 7, we experience the riches of his grace. That's the forgiveness of our sin. That's the gift of redemption, right? Notice in verse 8, this grace has been lavished on us. The Greek term means overflowing. It's, It's a word meaning more than abundant. That's his grace. And then notice at the end of verse 8, flowing into verse 9... In God's wisdom and insight, he has made known, granted to us, the saved, the mystery of his will. So, so you know, God in his love, listen to this, God in his love revealed truth of himself in his plan of salvation, which was a mystery to a lot of people up to this point. Who's he going to save? Why the nation of Israel? Why not other people? Why the 11 disciples? Why the thief on the cross and not the other? I mean, everybody's trying to figure this out, right? And he says, look, in in his love, he shows this. He displays this. He reveals it. And he did it for according to the kind intentions of his will. God is kind to save anyone, let alone the thousands and millions of believers that he's saved. Now, this means that God's revealed his truth. He's revealed his truth to you. Through the word of God. Believe the Bible. 
Alistair Begg said this week, I was listening to him, he said, stop putting your hope in some kind of new revelation. Stop leaning on some kind of experience and start putting your hope, trust, and experience in the Word of God. That's the problem we're having today in the church. So let me ask you a question. Where has God made known the mystery of His will to you? Dreams and visions? Somebody. Thank you. See, the Bible is the revealed word of God. It's inerrant, it's infallible, it's sufficient, and it's trustworthy. Where else can you be guaranteed of that? Now, I hear this said to me all the time. I believe God spoke to me. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to write down in your Bible what he said to you, say, somewhere between John 3.16 and John 17? Are you willing to say, well, this is what God told me? See, I say that because I want you to understand how abusive that is to God. God has given us everything we need in life and godliness through his revealed word. He's given us. And you'll say, well, Scott, well, how do you know? Well, well, read your Bible and obey him. I get asked this question a million times by people. How do I know the will of God? I tell them this. Read your Bible, pray, get off your knees and go obey him. You want to find God's will? Read your Bible, pray, get off your knees and go obey him. He is not doing some nut and shell game with you. And what confuses things, what makes almost impossible to find the will of God is when you, lay, when you live in sin. It's totally contrary to the will of God, right? And so study your Bible. And I love this thought that our loving God, God in his love, revealed truth to us. That's what makes us different from the unsaved. They don't know truth. So they're not been set free. And yet we have this whole massive group within Christendom now that walks around and says, I just wish God would say something to me. Well, let me know when you get done with this. Because I'm 38 years into it now. And I, I still, I, I can't tell you how many times I've taught this passage and how much I learned this week. We have the word of God. Don't abuse it. You want to discover the center of God's will? Read your Bible. Pray. Obey him. He will lead you right to it. I promise you. 2 Peter chapter 1 says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You go, well, how did he do that? Through the true knowledge of him. This is the true knowledge of him. Nothing else. This is what he wants us to know him from. And so we know him. And the Bible goes on to say, who called us. There it is again. This is the doctrine of grace is all over the Bible. Through his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises. Well, how would you know? People say, well, I know the promises of God. Where would you hear those from? Did he tell you that from the clouds? No, you heard them from here. And so we know his precious promises. And the goal is to make us divine partakers of his nature. That means he puts his own spirit within us. To escape the corruption of the world. Because all scriptures are inspired by God. And they're profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for the training of righteousness. What more do you want? <laughs> Imagine you've had all four of those. 
You had, you had teaching, so you knew what to do, how to do it, when to do it. You were reproof when you made a mistake, right? He course corrected you. He corrected you. He disciplined you when you got away from that through the word of God. And he trains you how to be right with him. And yet we got to have something from the clouds. One of the great defining characteristics of our loving God is he calls his children to be under the authority, under the divine authority of his word. It's one of the marks of a, a called, elected believer. And he's lavished this truth on us in such a way through the press's scripture. Six, God, is, uh, God in his love called us to be unified in Christ. Look at verse 10 with me. With a view of his administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, one of the things I love about the NASB translation is it's probably one of the closest word-for-word translations. Except in this verse. <laughs> I think the ESV does a much better job in this verse. Um, and, and here is the idea, what he's trying to say, this administration suitable. That's a little bit wordy, isn't it? ESV says, as a plan for the fullness of time. And that's the idea. The statement refers to the Father's all-inclusive plan of salvation. So God wants to unify us around Christ to come together in this all-inclusive plan that he has. So from the beginning of time, his goal is to gather all things together in his son. We say all the, all the time when someone dies, they went to see their savior. Because I think that's what God teaches. See, the whole goal was to bring unified uni people together in Christ for all of eternity. That's what he does. It's the doctrine of unification. It's the doctrine of unity. And verse 10 is looking ahead to the future when everything is completed in Christ. That is the whole plan of salvation from God choosing us before the foundations of the, the world to the restoration of this universe to the eternal exaltation of Jesus Christ in the heavens. See, that is the goal and that will be fulfilled as the Father draws people to himself and every tribe, tongue, and nation of people gather together in Christ. And that will be what we call the consummation of the bride. So verse 10 is talking about that. In love, he has the goal of the consummation of Christ, the unification of everybody in Christ. Jew, Gentile, tribes, tongues, nations, all of that together in Christ. You know I could preach every week on one verse in this. I'm crazy for trying to take this on, but bear with me. Um, Philippians 2 says, Make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintain the same love, un united in spirit, intent on one purpose. See, this is what we should be doing now. This is why we don't like division within the church, because it kind of mocks what God has designed. We should be of one spirit, one mind together. That's why when there's fights between you, we jump in. Go, no, 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 that's not the goal. The goal is restoration. The goal is be right with one another. And yes, we can harm each other greatly, but God has an answer. He showed us how to forgive through his son. And so that we can all be in unity together. Because in verse 10, one day every knee will hit the ground, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and we need to start doing that now. That's what brings us together. That's where the unity comes from. Unity is... Humiliation, uh, humiliation in a way, right? You humble yourself to be in unity in Christ. Notice the little phrase there. It says, summing up all things in Christ. That's his goal. 
Paul said it this way in chapter 4, verse 4. He said, there is one body, there's one spirit, just as also you were called into one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Period. That's God's goal from the foundations of the world. Seven. God in his love called us to glorification for the praise of his glory. God in his love called us to glorification for the praise of his glory. Look at 11 through 14. In him also we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. What an amazing argument, isn't it? To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after hearing the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the with Holy Spirit of promise, who is given a pledge of our inheritance with a view to redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So this verse literally tells us, starting in verse 11, that we have an inheritance waiting for us. That's the end. He says to this end, right? That's the great blessing. There's an inheritance after this life is done. If he chose you from the foundations of the world, he has an incredible world for you at the end with Christ at the center of it. Notice in verse 12, it's for all those whose hope is in Christ alone. See, that's the mark that's the, that shows you who was the elect. Their hope is in Christ alone. There isn't, there isn't hope in their, their own heritage and their own name and their church attendance and all of that. Their hope is in Christ alone. So the ones who get the inheritance are the ones who have their hope in Christ alone. Does that make sense? Look with me at verse 13. Here we hear the message of Christ in him over and over, right? Which was the gospel of our salvation. So God granted faith through the hearing of the gospel, right? Verse 14 13 and 14, and we believed. So the Holy Spirit sealed us with God's own promise. That's really cool, isn't it? When you get saved, God puts his seal on you. That's the Spirit of God. That seal will never be broken. That's assurance. We'll get to that as we work through salvation at the end, the doctrine of assurance. Um, it's God sealing us. And notice in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is our pledge, right? He's our pledge. We don't get him in some kind of second blessing and some kind of speak this or do this, some event. It's a gift from God. It's not earned. Anything is earned. Nothing is earned, right? It's all a gift from God. So the Spirit is not because I did something. The Spirit is there to give me a pledge that God promised to save me. He'll keep me safe. He'll, he'll bring me into eternal existence with him. And so this promise can be believed because God redeemed us from his own possession for his own glory, so the inheritance must follow. And of course, all this is done for the praise of his glory. Look at verse 5. He predestined us to be his adopted children, all done through his kindness, for what? For the praise of his glory. In verse 6. In verse 11, again, the Bible reminds us that God predestined, predetermined our future, so that we'd have this inheritance, all planned by the counsel of his will, a uh, uh, perfect counsel, if I add that, all done in verse 12, again, for what? The praise of his glory. And then you get to verse 13. He gives us the ability to hear truth. You heard the truth one day. And God opened your mind, and he did this, notice in verse 13, for the praise of his glory. 
See, this is why we sing a song like, Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. We sing that so well here. It's kind of our song in some ways, right? Oh, oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, our God. What an amazing tribute. And, of course, this all goes back to great passages like Romans 8, verse 28, that God causes all things to work together. All things. But mainly, when we think about this, we think about our salvation. He causes all those to work together for those who love God, to those who have been called. There it is, kaleo. That's a chosen out of the world people according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say, for this reason, he foreknew us. And I've said this word many times. It's a compound Greek word, for, to know something previous, knew is intimacy. God foreloved us. And what did he do in that foreloving act? Well, the Bible says he predestined us. Never be ashamed of the word predestination. It is one of the most glorious words given to us. It shows the loving act of a God who would predetermine our future not based on anything that we have done. We weren't even around. That's tremendous love. But then he goes on to say that to become conformed to the image of a son, that's the whole goal. This is why I preach against Reformed confessionalists, people go, oh, Reformed doctrines, and they go live any way they want. Oh, no. <laughs> this salvation is so great because the goal is to conform you in the image of Christ. And that's a lifelong process, isn't it? Salvation takes place, initial sanctification. You have uh, what we call perfect holiness in God, this positional holiness. But now while we wait for to, to this consummation of the bride, to wait till we go home to be with the Lord, he's constantly working on us to be like his son. And that's he did this for our glory. But, but notice he did this also, that those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. He declared them righteous. And those he justified, he also, then he uses this word, glorified. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't feel very glorified some mornings when I get up. My knees hurt. My back hurts. I'm tired. I've studied all week. I've got to somehow find injury, energy to do this not once, but twice. So the statement has to be something more about right now, doesn't it? So it teaches us that at the great sovereign work of God, when he applies the blood of Christ to us and when we're saved, at that moment we are ready for glory. If we were to die a moment after God saves us, we're outfitted perfectly to be in his presence for not just a day, but for all of eternity. Isn't that glorious? Doesn't that help your heart? I have a lot of love in it this morning. Last, I'm making it. God in his love called us to participate in the proclamation of the message of truth. Now, ah, this is good. Listen to that again. God in his love called us to participate in the proclamation of the message of truth. Look at verse 13, just the beginning of it. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So not only did God choose you from the foundations of the world and call you to himself in his perfect timing, but he used someone to preach the message to you. That's human responsibility. Right? Everybody wants to talk about, well, where's the human responsibility? Right there. Somebody obeyed God and preached the message to you. Mother, grandmother, father, BBS worker, Sunday school teacher, preacher, neighbor, somebody obeyed God and preached the message to you. 
Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So we have been chosen by the Father from the foundations of the world before they were ever laid down. We were called by God's redeeming love. He captured our heart and led us out of depravity. He gave us an eternal identification with the Son. He blessed us with all the all-sufficient, infallible word. He reunites us in Christ, a unity that never can be broken. And he calls us to a final glorification that will experience his joy forever. And the result of this is the believer who is chosen by God must proclaim the glories of Christ. That is the result of it. Turn with me for one last verse, and I promise I'll quit. 1 Peter chapter 2. I have to because they start backing up at the doors. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look with me at verse 9. But you are a chosen race. This stuff's everywhere. I mean, it's just everywhere. I just don't know how people fight it. Why do you want to fight this? But you, Christian, (laughs) you're a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. That word holy nation means a holy ethnos. We're a unique people. Isn't that incredible? You know, we have all kinds of races of people, right? We've got a bunch of them in here. You're actually not part of that group anymore in reality. You're a holy ethnos. Now, I know people have gone way too far with this, but that's pretty cool, isn't it? A people for God's own possession. Who do you belong to? Who chose you? I mean, just go down the line. God chose me. God saved me through his finished work of Christ. I belong to God. It's not not a hard equation. It's still 2 plus 2 equals 4. Always been that way. I don't know when they changed that. But look, we're a holy holy nation. We're people for God's own possession. Look at this. Now, here we go. This is what I end with. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God in his love has given us the opportunity to participate and share the truth, the message of truth that you heard with other people. What an incredible thing. And look, I have no idea who God has elected, but I'll throw my dead body in front of them to get them to not go to hell. Do you understand that? This is not some cold Calvinistic belief here. This is people who are gripped by the salvation of God who did something so miraculous so far before I was ever around and sealed me through Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit that I'll throw my dead body in front of somebody to get them to hear the gospel. Do you get that? That's the difference between a hyper-Calvinism and the doctrines of grace. We're passionate for the lost. We're humbled. We don't want anyone to go to hell. We leave that to God. We don't cross that line. He knows who's ours, who's are his. And we preach the gospel, the message of truth. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, we could just go on and on. And we look forward to going on and on in eternity with you someday. But we pray you'd give us strength and mercy to live this out, to believe this with all our hearts. Lord, may we carry the message of the gospel with us everywhere we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? Listen carefully in a summation of 
the sermon. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for shining your light, grace, and mercy on our lives. Thank you for choosing us before the foundations of the world, for calling us by your redeeming love and pulling us out of the depths of our depravity. Thank you for identifying us with your son so we could never be lost. Thank you for giving us your infallible word that we may know you and worship you. Thank you for uniting us in Christ in a bond that can be never be broken. And thank you for preparing us for final glorification in order that we could fully enter into your joy, all accomplished by your great love. Amen.